0: I'm Lonnie Edwards, the founder of The Dog Agency and Pet Insider, and you're listening to the Pet Insider Podcast. This is a show about the latest and greatest across the pet world. Whether you're a pet parent or just a little pet crazy, Pet Insider has you covered. We get it. We're obsessed too.
1: You know, essentially, as property, animals effectively have no rights, which makes it complicated for groups like ours or lawyers to be able to to work on their behalf. Because normally, to be able to you know file a lawsuit to protect a person or you are representing their interests, well, property doesn't have interests, so it's more like trying to file a lawsuit to protect a chair or a table.
0: That was Stephen Wells, executive director of the Animal Legal Defense Fund. A nonprofit organization that protects the rights of animals within the American legal system. Stephen will discuss the state of animals as property under the law, cases that the ALDF is currently working on, and how we all can get involved to help protect the rights of animals. Now let's get back to Stephen. So thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you for having me, Lonnie. Really appreciate it.
0: So to kick things off, uh, what is the Animal Legal Defense Fund?
1: So the Animal Legal Defense Fund is a national nonprofit animal protection organization. And what makes the Animal Legal Defense Fund unique is that we're exclusively focused on the law as the means to change.
0: And how does the ALDF work?
1: So uh, we have programs, uh, because of our focus on the law, we have programs that are broken down by uh, legal paths to change. So for example, we have a program that's focused on uh, the criminal law, so cruelty cases and so forth. So we have criminal law experts who are working with prosecutors and law enforcement all over the country. Uh, We provide free services for them to bring the best possible cruelty cases. We do trainings and so forth, um, that sort of thing, all to make sure that our criminal animal cruelty laws are enforced as strongly as they can be. Um, And then probably our best known program, of course, is our litigation program. And that's when uh, we do what we love to do best, which is sue animal abusers. So um, we have the most fun with that. And we have a lot of uh cases some that people may have heard about um but it's uh we have a lot of cases at any one time um, then we have a legislative program so we're working with uh, legislators to write and pass stronger animal protection laws um, and get the word out about that and then um two kind of unique focused programs we have and they were programs i started when i joined ldf about uh almost 20 years ago now it's hard to believe um, and that is our our student chapter program. So we now have, uh, since I started it uh, about 15 years ago, we have student chapters in almost every accredited law school in the country now. About 220 student chapters. So we're we're basically empowering law students to get involved with animal law and with our work. Um, and they host speakers and kind of get the word out in, in academia. Um, and then our pro bono program, and this is where we invite uh, lawyers and and law firms to do work uh, for ALDF. Um, It's been hugely successful. We had about uh, $4.2 million worth of legal work donated last year, uh, which of course allows us to do a lot more for animals. So that's kind of how we're structured. That's uh, how we do business.
0: How has animal law changed since the founding of the ALDF in 1979?
1: That is an interesting story. Yeah, so our founder, Joyce Tischler, um, was uh, a young attorney and realized that uh, the laws were not working very well for animals. Um, They were weak um, and haphazardly enforced when they were enforced uh, enforced at all. So she just, uh, there was nothing like ALDF available, Um, so she started something, you know, uh, it was originally called Attorneys for Animal Rights, uh, became the Animal Legal Defense Fund. And basically, all she knew was that the laws needed to improve and that lawyers needed to get involved to make that happen. So she had a law degree, her passion was protecting animals. Um, So it's a really inspiring story of, uh, you know, someone who just got in, rolled up her sleeves and got work in, and uh, um, so enormous change. You know, there was really no such thing as animal law, you know, as a a recognized field of practice or study uh, prior to the founding of, of ALDF. Um, and now, you know, animal law is taught at almost every law school. You know, it's being studied. There are uh, lawyers whose practices focus on animal law. Like I said, we have uh, pro bono partners. The biggest law firms in the country um, have signed up, and they're doing animal law work for us, and so forth. So, really, a sea change in terms of you know the 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 just the fact that people are talking about animals in the law now. Um, and then substantively, um, gosh, there's been so much change uh, in, in the almost 40 years since ALDF got started and really accelerating change. You know? And so just the 20 years or so that I've been involved, I'm just astounded at how much has changed. You know, a good example is uh, uh, there were, I think, just 18 states, that, whose animal cruelty laws included the potential for felony charges, you know, for really serious aggravated cruelty. Um, and now f- felony status is in every all 50 states. Um, and, you know, that's just one indicator of how much more uh, seriously it's being taken. We have um, now the, the, the FBI and the federal agencies are now recognizing animal cruelty in their criminal databases um, because they see it as uh, so much more important than they once did. Also, of course, uh, you know, indicators of potential violence to people. One of the top ones is, you know, violence to, to animals. Um, so I think it's been a couple of things. I think it's been the, the focus by attorneys And with the Animal Legal Defense Fund kind of providing a platform uh, and getting that started. Um, And then also just a growing awareness, you know, in society about the importance, you know, we've learned so much about animals and their capacity to feel and um, all that sort of thing. And I think we're starting to recognize that our laws are way behind the times.
0: Are there specific laws that you think have improved because of the work that's being done?
1: Yeah, um, there's there's a lot of really good examples, and uh, of course you're a lawyer, so I know uh, uh, you understand uh, you know how laws get changed. Um, but just for anyone else, you know, you, you change laws obviously legislatively, and that is uh, where you have uh, state legislators or you know uh, the federal government uh, passing laws through Congress. Uh, and that creates statutory law. Um, but then you can also change laws through litigation and filing strategic cases and so forth, um, and setting legal precedents. And you know those precedents can establish uh, new ways that existing laws can be used. Um, so that's what a lot of you know people ask me a lot, like how do we choose our cases and and that sort of thing. And it's a lot of thought because as you can imagine, uh, the need is, is really big um, and we have to be strategic with our limited resources. So we're looking for cases you know, that will have maximum impact that will um, uh, affect the most possible animals and also uh, hopefully set legal precedents that will continue to benefit other animals. So uh, changing the law, um, as you asked, a good recent example, Um, We filed a case in 2015 against a roadside zoo, uh, which is kind of the collective term for these little animal menageries that people put together of um, all kinds of animals, often uh, exotic wildlife and even endangered species. Um, Unfortunately, uh, our federal legal system does not regulate the trade and many states have no laws. so It's very easy to obtain uh, large uh, animals and just stick them in cages and so forth. So um, it's, a, it's a chronic problem across the country. So we found a place, um, activists came to us with a situation in Iowa at a place called Cricket Hollow Zoo uh, and they had a menagerie of animals but they had a couple of uh, species that were endangered, uh, type of lemur and a couple of tigers. Um, and so we had done enough research that we thought we could file a case Uh, We didn't see any reason why the Endangered Species Act, which of course is a a famous law that protects animals in the wild, they're at risk of extinction. Um, We saw no reason that that law shouldn't also provide protection to members of an endangered species that are in captivity. So we filed the case and we won and happily uh, the lemurs and tigers went to sanctuary, they endangered animals. Um, interestingly, while that case was pending, lions were listed as endangered um, because their numbers are dwindling and they also had lions. So we filed a second case for the lions there and also got them out. Um, but on the first case, so we won in the lower court and that ha- it was appealed and so just two weeks ago, uh, we got the Eighth Circuit decision, federal court, um, that upheld our victory in the Cricket Hollow case, which means that we have set precedent now that the Endangered Species Act applies to animals in captivity. So that has enormous potential to protect. You know, you think about, um, you know, orcas, you know, in little tanks are, are listed in endangered species. There's all kinds of species across the country, big cats and so forth, um, that this could benefit. You know, so so that's a lot that changed. We're pretty proud of and, and recently.
0: And what's been the most rewarding case you've worked on in your 20 years at the ALDF?
1: I get asked that question a lot. And, um, you know, there's been so much rewarding work. Uh, it was hard to say, but I, I have to say purely personally and emotionally, we had a case uh, that we filed back in 2004 um, that uh, it was a puppy mill, uh, kind of a hoarding puppy mill situation uh, that involved uh, about 350 dogs in uh, rural North Carolina. And it was a situation where people had been upset about the conditions for the dogs. are really horrific. Um, I won't go into great detail because it's upsetting, but really terrible, terrible conditions. And the prosecutor locally there wouldn't respond when the, the, the local rescues and so forth alerted them to conditions. And so they were really frustrated, and they eventually got in touch with ALDF. Um, So we looked at it, we did a bunch of research, and we found that North Carolina had a very unique law. No one seems quite clear how this law got passed, but there was actually a law in the books in North Carolina, the only state, um, that provided some civil remedies for the criminal cruelty law. In other words, usually with criminal laws, you have to rely on prosecutors to file charges. You know, you can't file a lawsuit yourself um, to enforce criminal laws. So this provided a civil law that said you can file a civil case Then uh, brings in the cruelty law. So anyway, we, uh, we were able to go after uh, this puppy mill directly, um, and it was the first time this law had been used. It had been on the books for decades. Nobody had ever used it. So it was a case of first impression, as they say. Um, so we won, um, and it was an interesting case. It literally, after we filed, we were in trial and the judge got up from the bench in the middle of the trial and said, I wanna go see this place. And he actually drove out to the, the property. It was, uh, the, the woman's name was, was Woodley, the last name. So it was ALDF versus Woodley is the case. Um, so he went out to the Woodley property and came back and said, you know, yeah, you have way too many dogs and they're in bad shape. And so he gave us a temporary injunction that uh, um, gave us all the dogs, like, just like that. So then, uh, then we had the realization that uh, we're actually a legal organization and not a shelter. Uh, <laughs> right, so what did you do with all
0: those
1: jobs? Yeah. <laughs> it was a really interesting situation where we were like, huh, didn't see that coming so quickly. Um, so it was a really, this was why it was such a wonderful experience. So we scrambled, we, we did everything we had to do. Uh, we found a place locally in this little town called Sanford, North Carolina. It was an empty factory that had been sitting abandoned for a long time. The owner got saw the news in the case, We uh, contacted us. We basically built a shelter inside this thing and, and then there was an army of volunteers uh one of the most touching things was how many people you know in this area came out and volunteered uh you know taking care of these dogs getting them back to health um so then uh i got i got the duty and the, the fortunate duty at the time to go and run the shelter um and uh so i was spending a lot of time in north carolina and I mean, doing everything from cleaning mucking out the uh the pens to uh organizing volunteers and that sort of thing. so um that was rewarding because uh you know the work that we do is usually it's in the courts we're changing laws we you know we know we're impacting animals but we rarely get hands-on work so to have been there on the day uh i had the job of taking the dogs out of the kennels and so forth that they were coming uh to the property in um to see how terrified and unsocialized and filthy and some of them sick and injured uh, you know, as they came in. And then over the months to see them you know, blooming with health and starting to get a personality and starting not to cower in a corner all the time was just an amazing experience. Um, so I'm happy to say uh, while the case was going on, we, we found homes for all of the dogs, it took us about a year and a half. Um, and uh, all the dogs found loving homes. And uh, the case was appealed, uh, which was good. Uh, we won in the lower court, uh, we won in the, the appellate court, this was state court, um, and it went all the way to the North Carolina Supreme Court, and we won. So we've now established you know, the law of the land in North Carolina. Um, the big thing was nobody had tested who could use this civil law. So our argument was that it was clearly intended for, you know, groups like ours or, you know, anybody with uh, an interest in in animals' well-being to be able to use it and that's the way it is. So, yeah, it was a really great case just because the dogs were saved, a great precedent was set. And I got my hands on a lot of dogs and helped. Yeah. <laughs> you know, was,
0: yeah. How long was that process from the beginning to the end?
1: Yeah. That is, so we filed the case in late 2004, and then we won the Supreme Court case in I think the middle of 07. Oh wow. So it was about a three-year process. Yeah. Yeah. So it was it was very emotional. We you know so many people even so years later now. Um, some of the volunteers and people that I worked with there have kept in touch, and many of them rescued some of the dogs. So I hear all these stories. They would send me pictures. So for years, I keep getting these pictures mm-hmm. and of these little dogs and what they're doing, and it's just an amazing experience. Um, you know, sadly, as it's uh, the case is now um, a long time ago, a lot of the dogs have passed away. So over the past few years, I've been getting these sweet notes, of stories about you know how how impactful to these people's lives that case was how wonderful they felt giving their you know their little dog this great home and so forth it was it was just a really great experience
0: backtracking a little bit when did you decide to devote your life to animals how did that decision come about and how did you find yourself with the aldf
1: I often say I have a very bizarre resume um, when it comes to uh, my professional path. But uh, to make a long story short, I grew up in Chicago um, and realized and and I had started businesses, so being an entrepreneur was kind of my thing. And and at some point I realized uh, in my mid-20s that I did not want to live the rest of my life in Chicago and I was really into the outdoors. Anyway, uh, so I sold my business and wound up moving to Alaska, um, the great outdoors. I didn't think I'd stay, but I was gonna spend about a year there and go explore. And um, happened to be the year the Exxon Valdez ran aground in Prince William Sound, the oil tanker, and spilled um, millions of gallons of oil. Um, so I got work on the oil spill cleanup. Um, and while I was out there, that was really a life-changing experience because you know I loved the outdoors, I loved wildlife, I loved my cats and dogs. and. Um, and I just, it something clicked with me about how vulnerable it all is and how even in this remote place where, you know, I thought, uh, the animals had all this space and sanctuary and weren't affected by, you know, what was going on in the cities and the crowded places, I realized really how vulnerable they are. So that sent me on a path of wanting to do something, you know, wanting to change and, uh, cha- you know, uh, change that paradigm. So initially, I was focused on wildlife and wildlands. So for 10 years, I, I wound up uh, through a number of other changes, but I wound up uh, being the executive director of a wildlife protection group in Anchorage. Uh, so that's where I kind of cut my teeth as uh, an activist. And I realized you know, business skills work well in nonprofits too. You know, you have to run, run a nonprofit and deal with a lot of the same things. So I was kind of excited that this skill set that I built up was useful to something I really cared about. Um, and then when I moved to California, um, it was for an opportunity that didn't pan out. And I decided rather than go back to Alaska, I would stay. Um, and then I met Joyce Tischler. Um, and she had an opening and uh, we talked and something clicked with me that, you know, the law is the best means we have, in, in my opinion, to change uh, to change how animals are treated in our society, and when I saw when I started looking at the issue, and saw how far away our laws are from you know what we say as a society, and I think how most people think animals are treated and protected. Um, so when I learned out how how they're not, that was that was the fight I wanted to take. Um, and uh, it's been really rewarding, and I still think uh, you know we have a long way to go, but we've made a lot of progress, and I'm still very excited about the law as it means to change.
0: As the executive director of the ALDF, what is your day to day like?
1: Um, so it's uh, it's highly variable, of course, um, and uh, because sort of as the executive director, which is, uh, this, it's the same as a CEO in, in a for-profit corporation. Um, you're kind of ultimately responsible for everything. Um, so you got to know what's going on, but of course, uh, you know, with an organization like ALDF, I can't know everything that's going on. Um, so I have, I have a lot of meetings, um, with people and it can be anything from, uh, you know, we have weekly legal strategy meetings, for example, where we basically get the lawyers from our various programs and, you know, all the uh, big thinkers together and sit around a table and talk about, you know, what's going to be our next strategy and what's working and not working. And that's really important, also really exciting and energizing. But then it can also be, you know, meeting with my finance director to look at the quarterly financials and see where we're at with our uh, expense, just like any business. More and more now, as ALDF has grown, um, my role has really changed. You know, in a smaller nonprofit, I was much more directly involved with the program work and the program directors. You know, reported directly to me, that sort of thing. As we've grown, my job. Um, is a little more outward facing. So trying to build coalitions with other groups and um, ALDF is big at work, trying to work with non-traditional partners. So not just animal protection groups, but um, environmental groups and, you know, for things like, you know, factory farming and so forth, uh, workers' rights groups, uh, you know, civil rights groups and so forth, um, which really paid off. You know, our, our ag-ag cases, uh, for example, Uh, ALDF was able to build coalitions and this ag ag laws are uh, laws that were passed in nine states that criminalized taking pictures or video on factory farms and of course they were being pushed by the ag industry to because they don't want people to see how animals are treated Um, so we filed constitutional lawsuits in a number of states and we won uh, two so far and we have others filed but that was an opportunity because these were issues that went beyond just animals but also you know basic fundamental first amendment rights and so we had the ACLU and some other groups basically I do a lot of traveling now and um so meeting uh, potential partners and um you know donors of course we uh, we rely on uh, donations to do our work so I have to keep in touch with our donors and let them know what's going on that sort of thing So, yeah, very variable, which I like. I I tend to be a, a generalist, so I really like a variety of things to do.
0: Pets are seen as property under the law. What rights do pets have?
1: There's, there's two ways to answer that question, depending on, uh, you know, which uh, legal experts you uh, you follow. But, you know, essentially as property, animals effectively have no rights, which makes it complicated for groups like ours or lawyers to be able to, to work on their behalf. Because normally to be able to, you know, file a lawsuit to protect a person or you are representing their interests, well... Property doesn't have interests, so it's more like trying to file a lawsuit to protect a chair or a table. So it's much more challenging, but the law is a little schizophrenic on that because, of course, we have uh, anti-cruelty laws in all 50 states, which in some ways creates uh, what some call a negative right I.e. the right not to be beaten, um, you know. So as opposed to a positive right that you know gives you something specific, like the right to free speech or you know something like that. Um, so we work with the fact that there are you know uh, protections for animals in the cruelty laws, and we try and bring those in creatively through other legal means. Um, but the real story is, and and one of the fundamental things we're trying to change is the fact that animals are still considered. You know, essentially, things by our laws, which of course so nobody out of thinks touch with how yeah, we view them. <laughs> exactly, exactly, and so and so that's both shocking, um, but also an opportunity. You know, when the law gets that far behind uh, public opinion, I mean, national polls have shown that uh, you know something on the order of eighty-five percent of uh, people with companion animals say they're members of the family. Um, and something, and it was a funny, a huge percentage, something like 70% said if they were marooned on a desert Island, they'd choose their dog over their <laughs> spouse or other family member. Clearly I mean, property. Exactly. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, so, you know, there's, there's, the law is clearly out of step, you know, um, and science has shown us, you know, now we learn more every day about the depth of animals, cognition and feelings and, uh, sociability and how really intelligent they are in ways we never imagined and so forth. So the law has got to catch up. These are not, this is not property.
0: Uh, what is it like going up against big organizations like the USDA and the FDA?
1: Um, well, it's uh, yeah, it's interesting. Uh, going up against federal agencies has its pros and cons. Um, the biggest con when you're going up against agencies is uh, the courts tend to give a lot of deference to agency opinions. Um, So it's very difficult to make a case. So we we actually haven't filed many federal agency cases that directly impact like how animals are are being treated because the courts will usually disagree with what what the agency says is correct. Um, But there are exceptions to that. Um, And uh, and it is important to do that, to hold our federal agencies and so forth accountable to the law. Um, one big way, uh, that we're using the federal courts is, um, the Freedom of Information Act, um, which is a really, really important law that we have, uh, that is supposed to make government accountable to the people, um, and, uh, so that the people can see what the government is up to. Well, agencies that are not doing, um, things that are popular with the public, uh, uh, don't like to give up documents uh, that show that so we often even though they're supposed to by law provide documents we often have to go to a court to get them um, so we have several you know and it, it's kind of our commitment uh you know accountability is a big thing you know accountability in the government uh, accountability uh, even in private industry you know to things like cruelty laws um But it takes a lot of resources, you know, as you can imagine, uh, those cases, you know, against the big entities can drag on for years and uh, um, require a lot of research. And a lot of, you know, you think about you file a lawsuit and you're trying to find information about something. Well, just going through the documents you get via that suit. So, you know, trying to you have to have lawyers who are reading the documents and finding the key points you need uh, through discovery, that sort of thing. So it's a it's a big effort. Um, and one of, the, uh, one of the great things that, that has changed with the LDF, I mentioned earlier uh, that I started a couple of programs, and one was the student program, the other one was our pro bono program. So we started asking big firms to, to get involved. We have about 450 law firms. I did mention that um, we have law firms doing this. But for those kinds of things, the opportunity to have experts, you know, from outside doing this kind of work for free really allows our legal experts, you know, to think up the next case. You know, so we often can can mitigate how much work these big cases are by working with lawyers who um, are experts and willing to do this work. Uh, for free, pro bono on behalf of their firms. So,
0: how do you go about finding those lawyers and getting them signed up?
1: So we have, um, initially it was me when I had this bright idea. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, sure. Go do that. Uh, And that was pretty much it. Um, I would, uh, talk to lawyers that we had, you know, as members or that were in our database and ask them, you know, who's your firm's pro bono coordinator. And then I would try and get a meeting and, um, you know, pitch to them the idea. And once you got a, a, once I got a few firms to do it, Then they got really excited about it. I remember one pro bono coordinator years ago that I worked with um, at a huge firm, Morrison & Forrester, which is a gigantic law firm. Um, You know, she told me, I had become her favorite pro bono client because she said, you know, we get all these pro bono requests and, you know, I put them out there to our attorneys and she said, when your requests come in, I have attorneys fighting over them. <laughs> like, you know, it's so hard for me to fill some of our pro bono requests, but people love doing this stuff for you. Uh, so that was really heartwarming to hear. And I remember one time... Uh, uh, she got us a couple of lawyers to work. And I can't remember the specifics of the case, uh, but it involved uh, a couple of dogs. And they won the case, or they did the work, you know, for us that helped us win the case. And they were based in Tokyo, <laughs> uh, you know, so it was very interesting. They took the pro bono thing. Um, so, uh, and once we won Morse Enforcer, which again is a huge global law firm, they have their own newspaper. It was like a front page of their law firm newspaper was this little animal case and, you know it's a company that does billions and billions in in major corporate work and so forth and the, their front page was this uh, dog case so it shows you you know uh
0: people um, love animals that's what brings people together
1: absolutely Absolutely.
0: So you mentioned Tokyo. What percent of the lawyers working and changing the laws are based outside of the U.S.?
1: I don't have a a really good estimate, but I will say that we have, uh, since ALDF has been so successful in the U.S., we have had lots of entities outside the U.S. in Europe, in Africa, in Asia, um, China. Um, Our founder was just in Hong Kong at at a conference on animal law. Um, and, uh, it's definitely growing. And so there's a lot of people who are trying to look at what we did here and say, we want to do that. You know, here in Europe, we want to do yeah. So it's
0: inspiring the world. <laughs> yeah, it's
1: very exciting, and of course, you know, we we we've often been asked, you know, what about doing um, international? And we have supported international things. We've funded conferences that bring people together, that sort of thing. Um, but of course, every legal system is so fundamentally different. You know, so if you're a lawyer, you know, our, our expertise is in American law. You know, even across the border in Canada, it's it's a it's significantly different system. Um, so, you know, when we need to, we work with lawyers on the ground in those countries. Um, but we don't do a lot of international work ourselves. Um, uh, exception would be like, uh, we, we attend, uh, meetings of CITES, which is the Convention on International Trade in, in Endangered Species. Um, we have, uh, someone who attends for us and advises us, and we look for opportunities to work with NGOs in other countries if they need help, you know, writing, uh, rules for, for endangered species, that sort of thing.
0: How are the laws in the U.S. versus elsewhere around animal rights? Do we have the strongest protections in place, or are we behind?
1: So the U.S. uh, certainly has uh, some of the strongest laws. Um, It really depends on which countries. Uh, So, uh, for example, the European Union has some really strong laws, and they're ahead of us in some areas. Um, So it's hard to make a blanket statement except to say, you know, there are countries where it's notoriously bad. So, you know, there are countries that, uh, you know, have, didn't even have a cruelty law at all, you know, which meant that animals were pretty much beyond the law. Um, but that's changing. You know, even in China, there's a national discussion now about how animals are treated. And they've been way behind on that, um, as, you know, we've seen too often. But that's changing.
0: So some hot topics and how the ALDF is getting involved. What's the current state of animal testing in the U.S., and how are you guys involved in that fight?
1: So animal testing, um, uh, vivisection, that sort of thing, is uh, has been a hot topic. As a matter of fact, some of the earliest animal protection groups uh, existed specifically around the issue of animal testing. I remember reading uh, Charles Darwin's daughter back in the early 1800s became a very vociferous, uh, anti-vivisectionist in, in England and so forth. So there's a lot of history of people getting involved against animal, uh, testing. Unfortunately, um, you know, it it continues and uh, hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions of animals, it's not entirely clear, uh, are used for experiments, um, you know, in every country, including the U.S. Um, And it's become an industry and that's a problem. And I think that's also uh, a path to, to a solution. Um, in other words, there's a whole industry supporting these things, the ones that breed the animals, you know, there's a company that just breeds dogs to go into experiments, for example, and, uh, ditto rats and cats and, you know, all those sorts of things. Um, and the problem with that is that anytime you have an industry or profit motivation, um, you know, they're wanting to stay in business and they're wanting to sell more and so forth. Um, and so there's a lot of research being done that even the scientific committee uh, community is now admitting, um, it is should not be happening, and is really not providing results that are useful. Um, there, people are getting grants because they can, and so forth. So again, that's horrifying. Um, you know, the, some of the experiments going on in this country just can bring you to tears when you realize what they're doing. Um, there's actually uh, testing on uh, rhesus macaque monkeys at the University of Wisconsin in uh, Madison. And they were called baby monkey terror experiments, and it was basically literally that. They found all kinds of creative ways to terrorize baby monkeys, and then vivisect them and study what the terror did to their brain. Um, you know, so like things like that. And but the awareness is growing. That's not happening now. Um, you know, it could, but it's not because of the awareness. And most importantly, I think, and the biggest opportunity is that the National Academy of Sciences, um, which is the nation's premier scientific uh, research uh, entity, issued a report a couple of years ago that essentially said that it was time to move away from animal testing as the fundamental model because it is so inaccurate, so riddled with potential inaccuracies um, and technology has provided us with much better solutions. So, if you're wanting to test, you know, what impact a chemical or makeup or something is going to have on a person, there are much better ways to do that now with stem cells, with you know, uh, in vitro kind, of, you know, those sorts of things. Um, but also, computer modeling is now replacing, you know, replacing, and they're much more accurate because you know, a cat is not a human, a, a rat is not a human. Um, so, what you learn may or may not be relevant. But meanwhile, a lot of animals are suffering.
0: I know you touched on this already with respect to the North Carolina case, but puppy mills in general.
1: Yeah, so puppy mills, um, the most exciting thing I think happening with puppy mills is uh, there's kind of a new push for legislation, mostly at the local and state level, uh, which is aimed at banning the sale of of dogs uh, from puppy mills and so it's designed to really you know hit the sourcing and uh, force pet stores if they're going to sell pets to source from rescues and um, you know reputable shelters and that sort of thing Um, so it's a good sign that we may have turned a corner on this puppy mill thing and that's going to be interesting to see how that plays out it's still a big industry though particularly in the midwest uh, where most of the uh, the dogs from puppy mills come from and are imported. Um, and it's terrible. You know, I've witnessed the conditions for farm animals and factory farms, and it's horrifying. And, um, and puppy mills are really almost like, you know, factory farming of dogs. And the thing is, I mean, these are animals. You can see some disconnect for people with, you know, say, food animals that they don't interact ever interact with. Um, but these are the animals we sleep with. You know, these are the animals that, you know, occupy our beds and our lives and members of the family and that sort of thing. So it's really uh, pretty appalling that we're allowing, um, you know, that kind of treatment for of dogs for profit. Um, so, again, an opportunity, you know. I think when you have that kind of disconnect, uh, that's an opportunity for change. We just... Uh, filed a lawsuit, uh, which uh, we hope will be a model against a puppy mill in Vallejo, California. Um, And we won preliminary injunction that shuts it down. Uh, They have to give up all their dogs and so forth. We'll still uh, have a trial, but of course, it's a really good sign we got the injunction, we'll probably win. Um, so there are opportunities to challenge puppy mills as well. Um, the challenge is much like with factory farming, it's hard to get in and see what's going on so you can get the facts to bring a case they are very secretive, um, but, uh, again, the tide, is, the tide is shifting. I think people are much more aware. And I think these laws that ban the sale of puppy mill animals will be um, the strongest means to an end for puppy mills. Sometimes these kinds of things are done like at the city level or county level. Um, and it's easier to do, you know, smaller population, you can be focused. And that's what happened. You know, Los Angeles had banned the sale of puppy mill puppies. And um, we actually just completed litigation against a pet store chain in LA that was selling puppy mill Puppies and lying to customers about it. Um, and. Uh, How did they
0: get away with lying to the customers about it?
1: They would just tell them that, oh, these are from, you know, local small, you know, breeders or they're from rescues or, you know, this is a, from Breed Rescue was their favorite thing. And we were able to um, obtain evidence that, no, indeed, they were shipping, getting shipments of puppies from across the country, from Missouri and places like that. So they have
0: to provide paperwork to the customers when they're saying that they're coming from breed, they just forge the documents. How is that? Yeah.
1: Falsified documents. You know, some of them will also, you know, they'll have correct documentation for certain dogs, but then they'll sort of just use that same documentation again and again and again. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, the great thing is when these laws pass, it's really important. You know, we have to have the laws to do what we do, but you also have to have the enforcement. So that's the other side of the story is we, we work both filing our lawsuits ourselves and also really working with prosecutors and giving them the support to make sure that once we have the laws, they're actually enforced. Um, also really important.
0: All right, next hot topic. SeaWorld, Seaquarium, zoos...
1: Animals in captivity, it's it's a big issue and something the Animal Legal Defense Fund has taken on, uh, particularly uh, wildlife in captivity. We were involved when there was a big fight in California over SeaWorld in San Diego had wanted to expand. And... Um, and they were gonna be breeding and, and that sort of thing. And we got involved in that fight, as did a lot of other groups, um, and hap- happily were able to get the permit denied, um, which changed the model. And of course, Blackfish, uh, the movie, um, really documented you know what's going on with captive orcas um, and drew people's attention to that. But there's a lot of other uh, you know, similar issues. There's an orca in a, uh, a Miami Sea aquarium down in Miami, Uh, the smallest orca tank in the world, Um, and the size of it, I mean, it's, you know, it would be like you and me living our lives in a closet, essentially, for an orca, this giant animal. You can see the aerial shots of it are ridiculous. It's an orca in a swimming pool, essentially. Um, And of course, orcas are highly social. They live in family groups. Uh, They communicate constantly with their family. They swim long distances, you know, everything they need to be healthy, Um, And happy is denied them in in captivity. And that's really the issue, you know, is um, there, you know, we're looking at the more we learn about animals and their their needs and their sociability, the more we realize that uh, some animals just can't do well in captivity um, at all. Um, And then, of course, there's the scourge of uh, roadside zoos and the market, how easy it is to get wildlife and to to purchase animals um, is part of the problem. Um, So, uh, one example I give, too, is you think about it. it we don't have good laws um, to keep uh, wildlife traffickers from being able to sell animals all over. And so, for example, reptiles are big. And, you know, so you can buy pythons and you can buy boa constrictors and all these exotic snakes and so forth. Um, And one of the problems is, you know, people dump them, they get loose. And so we now have a situation in the Everglades in California is being overrun with uh, pythons and boa constrictors and they're eating native wildlife um, and uh, even endangered species. Um, So the problems with, you know, captive wildlife and the captive trade um, are multitude. Um, from you know conditions for the individual animals to uh, the impact of uh, you know animals that get out on uh, the the native wildlife and environment, um, and just I think society is asking itself the question of you know just because we want to see an animal or just because we want to be entertained by an animal like orca shows or like, you know, elephants in circuses, is it okay? You know, is it okay to keep them, you know, chained to the floor or in a, uh, uh, you know, train car for their entire lives? And I, I think that's the important thing that's going on is I think society's attitudes around that have really changed. Um, so you look at uh, bull hook bands, you know, that control elephants that use these metal rods called bullhooks when cities all over the country started passing bans on bullhooks, it was essentially a ban on elephants and circuses because circuses couldn't come. Um, and that was one of the things why Ringling uh, eventually uh, shut down, gave up the elephants and, and so forth. So um, really there's a lot of good news. And a lot of it has to do with like, people's attitudes changing. And, uh, and then I think con- concurrent with that is we're seeing a lot of change in the law. We're moving in the right direction.
0: Uh, so what about acting animal, animals in the entertainment industry?
1: Yeah, that's, that's another interesting, uh, aspect of, uh, uh, you know, keeping animals in captivity is the entertainment industry. Uh, and you know, the, the answer is it it varies, of course. Um, I think there are, you know, companion animal actors who are very well treated and have great bonds with their people and so forth. Um, but Our particular concern, and I think the concern of of most people as they learn what's going on, is having, um, you know, large, wild animals that are uh, trained to do tricks and so forth. Um, And the seamy underbelly of the industry is that uh, no matter what they say, and you have a lot of uh, trainers talking about, you know, humane and positive reinforcement and so forth, that's not how it works. Um, The way you get a, a chimpanzee or an elephant or a tiger... Uh, to perform tricks and to obey um, is, uh, you know, I, I hate to put it this way because it's shocking, but basically you when they're young, you beat them, and uh, that is how you get them to submit. Um, and it's been well documented, uh, particularly with elephants and chimpanzees and so forth. Um, and so, when you see a chimpanzee, you know, in that funny commercial, you know, advertising whatever, um, you know, I want people to be aware that 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 animal was horribly mistreated um, to get them to be able to perform in that. And then the flip side too is that uh, chimpanzees, which can have a you know fairly long lifespan, can only be used as animal actors for three to four years, and once they get to that point, they become unmanageable. Even, even with the beatings and trainings and so forth, they become, they're very strong and they become, uh, they, they just won't listen anymore. So the sad thing is a lot of them then get parked in some horrible roadside zoo and there are chimpanzees in cages across the country that are gonna live the rest of their lives uh, because they served their few years in the entertainment industry. So, um, you know, once again, I think it raises the question is, you know, is is that a consequence that makes, you know, a, a cute, appearance in a movie or a TV commercial uh, worthwhile. And I think most people would say no. And I think people are starting to become aware of that and are saying no.
0: So how are dogs different? Because I feel like dogs can be trained to do things in a good way. Is that just because of their innate capabilities or their desire to please? How are they different from chimpanzees?
1: Yeah, um, they're and, and you know, not to say that dogs don't get mistreated sometimes. But Fundamentally different, you know, there's a lot of research and I'm a big dog fan, as you know, um, had dogs my whole life and love dogs. Um, and uh, it's fascinating me to read about, you know, the history. There's a, really a lot of study that's gone into like the long, long, you know, tens of thousands of years bond that humans have developed with domestic dogs to the extent that, you know, they've done things like um, uh, because of it's called coevolution. You know, we really have uh, brought domestic dogs have been part of our lives for so long that we've evolved similarly. And they've realized that things like dogs read facial cues on people, Um, even chimpanzees and other primates, you know, like us can't do that. Uh, dogs understand pointing. You can point at things with dogs and they get what you're meaning. You can't teach a chimpanzee to understand what it means when you point, they don't do it. So dogs have learned this and it's almost become this innate behavior. So all of that is just an example of you know our relationship with dogs in particular is, is really different. Um, so to get them to do, as we all know, um, you know, food is a great motivator. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So you can do that. Um, and, uh, you know, dogs can be handled and, you know, you can have a, a dog that sleeps in your bed and still will get up and happily do, uh, tricks and so forth. So that's really the difference.
0: So now the future of the ALDF, we've touched on this a bit, but what do you kind of hope to happen in the next 20 years? What do you think is feasible? Where are we headed?
1: Yeah. So, um, wow. 20 years is a, is a big, double I think your of times. Like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm thinking like, uh, you know, so many things I couldn't have imagined happening so quickly 20 years ago have happened, you know? And, um, so the pace of change has been faster than I might've hoped. Um, and I'm pretty hopeful. Um, So, you know, I would say a a big thing and kind of like underpinning the work that we do, uh, as I mentioned, is, you know, the fundamental problem of animals being considered just property, just things. Um, I see that changing in the next 20 years, we can do this. Um, And uh, one exciting thing, I don't know if you you got the news, but we filed a a case uh, in Oregon a couple of weeks ago Uh, on behalf of a a horse named Justice, totally coincidentally, but that's pretty cool. Um, And so Justice was badly abused and neglected by his former owners. Um, And they pled guilty uh, to uh, criminal uh, cruelty charges. And um, Justice went to a sanctuary where he was able to be and where he still lives a happy life now. And he was able to be rehabilitated. You know, he can do a lot of horse things, but he has severe medical conditions that will be with him the rest of his life because of his abuse and neglect, um, which are costly. So uh, given some favorable case law in Oregon, some of which uh, the Animal Legal Defense Fund was involved with, like a criminal case that uh, in Oregon that went all the way to the Supreme Court and underscored that uh, individual animals can be considered victims of a crime. Uh, sounds rather obvious to us, but that's a pretty big deal in the law. Um, recognizing individual animals as crime victims, um, and some other statutory language that exists, we felt that uh, this was the right time to to file a case where justice is actually the plaintiff. And as I mentioned before, you know you can't; uh, the laws don't specifically allow that. But we think in this case, it's a good case, uh, and we're hoping that. Uh, Um, The courts will recognize that justice was harmed, that uh, there are damages that should be paid, and they should be paid by the person who who committed the crime. Um, And that's really what we're arguing. So it's going to be an interesting case to follow. So, you know, those kinds of cases, I think there will be similar opportunities. Um, You know, the law is an incremental process. Um, You know, we win cases, we set precedents, then we, you know, build on those precedents and uh, win more precedents and hopefully meanwhile also push legislation. Um, But it it tends to happen incrementally and then eventually you get to the the tipping point, you know, and we're hoping maybe justice will be a tipping point in Oregon for recognizing that animals uh, have inherent interests that should be recognized and respected and protected by law.
0: And how can people get involved, both lawyers and non-lawyers?
1: So um, lawyers, we would certainly welcome to, uh, to join and uh, become. We have a membership for lawyers that includes some extra perks uh, uh, that uh, on, on cases and so forth. Um, and we also have our pro bono program. So if, uh, if there are lawyers out there who have time and would like to uh, get involved with some of our work, definitely encourages you to, uh, and all the information is on our website uh aldf.org uh and like animal legal defense Fund.org um and uh there's also information there for individuals so we uh, uh we are completely funded by uh, donors mostly individual donors um, we don't get federal or corporate money um so it's individuals and foundations so if uh, people are inclined they're welcome to join and support our work Um, and then be part of our our team. We do ask our members to uh, support us in taking action um, when it's appropriate on some of our cases, certainly on our legislation. Um, and, uh, you know, that's what makes, uh, it's, it's pretty rewarding to be involved and we win, be part of winning these victories and so forth. Um, but yeah, ALDF.org, we're also on Facebook, uh, animal legal defense fund, all run together on Facebook, um, Twitter, Instagram, all those sorts of things. So if you're interested in our work and want to follow that, that'd be the way.
0: Thank you so much for joining us. Always a pleasure to talk to you.
1: Thank you so much, Lonnie. I really appreciate the opportunity.
0: That was Stephen Wells, Executive Director of the Animal Legal Defense Fund. To stay up to date with their efforts and or to donate, visit ALDF.org. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Please leave us an awesome review and make sure to subscribe so you don't miss a thing. If you have any pet-related topics you want us to cover, email us at podcast at petinsider.com. To listen to past episodes, visit petinsider.com podcast. I'm Lonnie Edwards, and thank you for listening to the Pet Insider Podcast. Talk soon.